0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, explore the secret world of spiders with macro photographer Jillian Coles. Hear how some Tucsonans cope with negative emotions like depression and anxiety and a spotlight session featuring the music of Rebecca Rowland from her album Seed and Silo. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. For more than 15 years, clinical microbiologist and naturalist Jillian Coles has been exploring a secret world that few dare to enter. Using macro photography, her knowledge of arachnid behavior, and some extreme patience, Coles has been capturing startling images from the private lives of creatures like spiders and scorpions. She's made many important discoveries about their courtship and mating, maternal care and social habits, as well as hunting and defense. Her new book, Amazing Arachnids, includes more than 750 striking photos that illustrate her detailed research. I asked Jillian Coles where her interest in getting small got started.
1: I've always liked little things. As a kid, if you need glasses because of being nearsighted you can see little stuff up close really well (laughs) you don't see far away things nearly as well so you tend to sort of focus in on little things macro photography is a wonderful doorway into a whole nother world it's kind of like Alice going down the rabbit hole and what you can capture in a photograph is stuff that you cannot see with your naked eye like a spitting spider in action With your naked eye, you cannot see that, but with the macro photography and with the magic of the flash, it'll stop motion and you can see something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see.
0: Before our interview, you sent over about 15 photographs with detailed captions, which were extremely helpful to me to understand what I was looking at. And you talk about, for instance, in one case, a fishing spider and Uh, how the, the, in this case, the spider had captured a fish as large as the spider was. How long did it take you to capture this image and what exactly did you witness?
1: Okay, so that fishing spider was one that I actually raised in a 10 gallon tank that was half land and half water. So the tank I planted uh, various aquatic little plants that come up out of the water and it simulates a nice little aquatic environment. And in the half of the tank that had water in it, I have a lot of guppies. I've actually been keeping this tank going now for about seven years and the guppies are doing great. And when I sprinkle food on the surface of the water for the guppies, If the fishing spider is hungry, that's when she makes her move. Because what they do is they read the disturbance on the surface of the water just the way an orb spider reads the disturbance in a big web. So the surface of the water, when it's being disturbed by a fish that's picking food off of the surface, the fishing spider will then gallop across the surface without breaking the the surface tension and will grab the fish, right at the surface, and it will sometimes struggle, sometimes it'll be a little bit of a struggle at the surface of the water where they sort of thrash around and there's a lot of rolling around on the surface. And you then think
0: the, that would drag the spider underwater, but that's okay? The, the, the spider, spider is so amphibious. buoyant
1: that it doesn't seem to be dragged under very easily, and it must have a very potent venom because the fish is usually um, incapacitated very rapidly. And so then the spider immediately rushes with the fish to some vegetation and it'll climb up on the vegetation because what it has to do is introduce digestive enzymes into that fish in order to masticate it and slurp down the predigested liquefied food because it doesn't ingest particulate food, it has to predigest it.
0: <laughs> I love that story. Okay. Uh, so often ants are hailed for their incredible strength and their ability to carry several times their body weight, but spiders sound like they're pretty strong also.
1: Oh yeah. Spiders are, are very strong, um, and their silk can be in extraordinarily strong. There's a lot of figures about how much stronger it is than steel and so on and so forth, but basically it's a measure of its elasticity and its strength together, which gives it a, a certain toughness. And one of the extraordinary things about orb weavers is that the, the foundation silk around the perimeter of the web and the spokes of the wheel of the web convert 50% of the energy from an insect impact into heat. If it didn't convert it, the insect would be catapulted off of the web. But when you figure an insect, a fast-flying large insect hitting a web at a 90-degree angle, to have that silk be able to Convert that energy into heat allows the insect to stick in the web so that the spider can then capture it. So, some of this is being looked at by scientists in order to hopefully design a better airbag, for example, something that convert kinetic energy into heat and it might save your life someday.
0: And you would owe it all to a little spider. Yeah. (laughs) In another great photograph, you refer to a male cellar spider as being chivalrous. Why would you use that phrase?
1: Because he captured a bark scorpion all by himself, and this female cellar spider came over, and she kind of w- tapped him with her feet, and he allowed her to partake of this meal that he himself had captured. Of course, in the long run, that probably serves his best interests, because A well-fed female is maybe more likely to mate with the male. She's also more likely to produce a lot of eggs. And so her ability to feed on that big meal might uh, give him a better chance of mating and passing his genes on.
0: So, it is part of a survival strategy. Yes. You've captured other incidences of food sharing and things that we might think of as being activities that mammals would engage in.
1: Yes. I think that probably the most startling thing I ever saw was a mother vinegaroon sharing food with a baby a full four months after the baby had emerged from the maternal burrow. She actively walked over reached down into the baby's burrow after she had captured a cricket. And the baby came up out of the burrow and she shared a meal with that baby. And I thought to myself, whoa, this isn't supposed to happen. These things only happen with warm blooded uh, furred or feathered creatures. And it really, really shocked me and made me reassess a lot of my preconceived assumptions about what happens.
0: So you've been engaged with doing macro photography for quite some time, and now you have a book out, Amazing Arachnids. Did you have a goal for this book? Did you have a purpose that you wanted this book to achieve in terms of sharing the knowledge you've gathered?
1: Yes. I realized early on that people who were afraid of arthropods, if they got to look at them in a photograph up close... It was a non-threatening experience, and it really helped the people um, appreciate the animals without being afraid of them. And so I decided very early on that it would be a really good thing to be able to share that magical journey of, of down that rabbit hole and see all these incredible things with people so that they could enjoy the arachnids. That way the arachnids win because people aren't automatically killing them with a shoe or something. And the people win because they, they get something out of it that's enjoyable instead of being afraid all the time.
0: Jillian Cole's book is Amazing Arachnids, published by Princeton University Press. You can see a slideshow of some of her amazing images on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Every week in Tucson, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, hosts meetings for people living with mental illness. In a moderated discussion, the group works towards a united goal of improving their mental health. I joined a NAMI peer group meeting at Hope Incorporated, a community enrichment center near Country Club and Speedway. And I asked some of those in attendance to share the methods that they rely on to help them cope.
2: Uh, my name is Steven, I live with bipolar one, panic disorder, um, and OCD. A good coping skill for me is um, having a dog, um, very supportive dog that wakes me up in the morning and uh, wants a walk and uh, I have to get up. And it's great to get out and uh, visit with the neighbors. Talking seems to take me away from um, my mental illness. So reaching out to people and people that you can trust. You, know, you need to find a good friend-based trust.
3: Hi, I'm Susie, and I've been diagnosed with bipolar two, PTSD, and generalized anxiety. I really, unfortunately, overanalyze and scrutinize everything. So um, right now, actually, one of the kind of breakthroughs that I've had is to not respond to subtext. Because it's a tool that you use to protect yourself when you're dealing with unstable people in your life but it can become harmfully for you and toxic for you going forward when people are not like that and so it's actually more healthy for me to not engage in that subtext in a very short amount of time it's helped tremendously but it's tricky it is very tricky to kind of figure out how to healthfully um, not respond to subtext you know and still give credence to things when they need to be
4: i'm peter and uh, i live with major depression i don't like to say i suffer from it i just live with it so the thing that helps me the most is to think about the fact that this is temporary. And I, I try to focus on a point in my life where I'll look back at all of this and go, well, that happened and I survived. You know, they say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I try to remind myself all the time that this too shall pass. You know, our, our minds are these time travelers. They go forward in the future full of anxiety and they go back into the past full of regret and the best thing you can do is realize that this is the only moment you have right now. All of that, you know, that's a figment of your imagination, essentially. It's it's just your imagination run amok. For me, I find what's most helpful is actually to think about, what does my butt feel like in my chair? What do these clothes feel like on my body? You know, something physical to ground me in the world that I'm in now so I can be back in the present where I can actually be effective at dealing with things.
2: Hi, my name's Andrew. I have bipolar one disorder with psychotic features. One of the 12 step programs that I'm a part of taught me to uh, recognize when something's unmanageable. So, when something's unmanageable, you can seek help. Besides uh, seeking professional help and going to support groups like NAMI, I would say be positive. You know, staying positive and remembering that, you know, no matter how uh, tough it gets, you know, there's always the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Uh, My name's Athena. Um, I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. It kind of depends on the trigger, for me at least. Um, I do have medication, um, but if I don't use that, I will use word searches, which is (laughs) kind of, I don't know, it works for me. Um, I just get like little cheap ones from like Walmart or something. It's just really good to distract myself, especially at work when I get, because I get anxious at work sometimes. So it's just something to like kind of help distract me. It just kind of keeps my mind occupied, since when it's not occupied, then I just have like a lot of like anxious thoughts or like negative self-talk and stuff. So it's a good distraction. (laughs)
0: Those voices came to us from NAMI, Southern Arizona, part of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They offer support, resources, and understanding. You can contact them at namisa.org. Rebecca Rowland and her husband Matt both grew up in musical families steeped in folk and bluegrass. They've known each other since they were kids, and they keep their musical traditions alive with devotion to touring and recording with their band Run Boy Run. Their latest project is driven by Rebecca's songs, inspired by the writing of Willa Cather and the experience of American homesteaders in the early part of the 20th century. The album is called Seed and Silo. You'll hear Rebecca and Matt Rowland, joined by guitarist Ryan Green, performing songs from that album next in this Spotlight Session.
2: Becca's songwriting all the time. She she's the kind of person that she could go to pick up groceries or to go get gas, and by the time she gets back, she has a fully fleshed-out song. My songs I kind of just polish them. They take a long time. They you know, let them roll around in my head for a while. But she's a much more just a flash of genius kind of writing where it just comes out of her.
0: What Matt said about you being able to write a song, like even when you're in the car, that seems really believable because there's a quality to your voice that I always think of as being a personal singer, someone who sings for themselves, someone who sings their poems. You've obviously developed that to an outside voice when you're on stage, but you're also a really strong guitar player. I mean, you're really not at all meek about hitting those strings. And so it's an interesting dichotomy that's going on
3: there. You know, I wanted to get to a point where I felt like the, the guitar played a really supportive role, and I could just sort of do that, and and then I would be free to sing and to not have to think about it and to just sort of be really expressive in that. I think a really important like aspect of performing is, is just being able to lose yourself in it and not having to think too much about the mechanics behind everything. That's definitely something that I focus on when I'm performing, just express the the emotions of the lyrics and kind of that that narrative and and just as as real and authentic a way as possible
5: when i'm
0: pick a song from this session that you played today and tell us where it came from. What's the story behind it?
3: We played the song The Spirit, and the record was inspired by the history of homesteading. There's like a hundred year history to that. The first one was established in 1862. I first became interested in that history because of Willa Cather, and I studied literature, and I I had read her in high school a lot of her books, and then I revisited her. Um, The one that is really close to my heart and one that I love especially is My Antonia. So that song um, is about Antonia and her father and they were from what is now the Czech Republic and she came with brothers and a sister and then her parents and they um, initially lived in a little dugout which were these holes that they dug out of the prairie ground. That first winter was really difficult and um, her relationship with her father is a it was a really touching one in the novel and her father struggled a lot because he was um, an academic and a violinist a classical musician I just thought that um, that relationship was really special as I was reading the story and really moved me so I wanted to write a song about it
5: do you know where you-
0: So, Matt and Rebecca, living lives as full of music as you've talked about here. How did you know when you had an album? How did you know when the time was right for seed and Silo?
3: Ironically, we were on tour with our quartet. I was reading my Antonia, and I was like, gosh, man, I wish there. I wish somebody would, like, give me the Environment in which to like write a whole album on Willa Cather's books, and um, and I started Googling and I found out about the National Parks residency. So the two of us went up there together and we just researched and walked and I wrote like crazy and we did some performances out there and I I thought our music lent itself really well to telling those stories.
2: With Rumboy Run, we set out to record an album intentionally and you know it's part of the the touring cycle but this project was self-contained in a way it was a songwriting project and then for us learning about how to produce it and record it and put it out and in a new way which which was really exciting
0: so matt roland please pick a song from this session today and tell us the story behind it
2: one of my favorite songs from the record is a song called paradise I like the song a lot because it tells the story of homesteading history from sort of an economic perspective. Back in those days, they hired advertising companies to recruit homesteaders. And so you saw a lot of kind of pop Americana style advertising in the paradise of the West going out to Nebraska and the Dakotas. And there was just this perfect paradise where you could go and, you know, have a successful farm easily because those advertisers were paid by the recruit. And so there's sort of this uh, false incentive scheme. And this economic history is displayed really well at Homestead National Monument. You can see the signs, you can see the history, but it's just a sad part of the history because a lot of people went out and they were not equipped or prepared. And so there was a lot of failures.
5: It's a to four at the break of day and I really should be on by way. It's with the windows on something and, and the city is gray like an iron bell. to stop the rain my
0: Rebecca Rowland was joined by her husband Matt Rowland on fiddle, mandolin, and guitar and guest guitarist Ryan Green. Rebecca's new album is called Seed and Silo. The music was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood and the AZPM Radio Studios. You can listen to the complete session at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.